Welcome, everybody, to Navigating Change, the podcast from Tybal Inc. I'm Pete Wright, and I'm here with, once again, Howard Tybal. Pete Wright, great to hear your voice again. Are you? It's always a good day, and it's sunny out again. Whenever I call you, it's sunny. That's, I, you know, I do that. I do my best to control the weather for you. Are you excited about our conversation today? You have no. I've been waiting for this one for a while. I'm very excited. It what are we talking about? Like what it. are we, we doing? Have, we have a another very special guest on yes, the show we today. Do. Uh, education. What, what would you What would you say? Education provocateur Grant Lichtman. Absolutely, Grant. Welcome to the show. Thanks very much, uh, Howard and Pete. Thanks a lot for having me. We uh, you have uh, you have a new a book coming out, and it answers the question: What should I do with my time if all I have is a car and an interest in education? Uh, you took a three-month, now check me when I start lying here, a three-month solo road trip across the United States to interview over 600 teachers, administrators, students, parents, and trustees. Is that about right? Yeah, that's about right. Uh, you know, if you, if you talk to educators, I think you talk to a lot of people, but educators specifically, and ask them what do they wish they had more of, almost everybody will tell you they wish they had more time. Uh, schools are such busy places. Uh, so I was in a position where I had some time and I had a, a wife who was understanding enough to let me uh, uh, head off on this and do something which I think maybe not a lot of folks have ever been able to do before. Well, you you become uh, sort of the de facto custodian of a conversation that is very important, certainly very important to those uh, who listen to this show and to Howard and I personally. The result is wrapped up in a book, uh, and I'm, I'm going to say this with the appropriate use of the hashtag, hashtag Ed Journey, a roadmap to the future of education. It's due from uh, Josie Bass. Uh, uh, on September 2nd, available for pre-order now, uh, and we're here to talk about uh, the findings in that book today. Yeah, thanks very much. Uh, it was uh, it was a great experience to take this trip and to be able to, to write the book, and I think I love your word, uh, use of the word uh, custodian, because I really see myself uh, and the uh, honor and uh, ability that I had to make this trip and interview all these folks as, as sort of a facilitator, a Johnny Appleseed in a way, a connector, uh, being able to take the time to observe, listen, uh, report, uh, and connect uh, on some of the great things that are going on out there in education, but not just the great things, some of the, the trials that we're going through, uh, the struggles that schools have to meet the needs of a rapidly changing world, but then also to share uh, models of success that I was able to uh, find at, at virtually every school I visited. I'm very interested in that. I, you know, and I want to start with with Howard. I, you know, we we talk so much about this idea of of you know change and and spinning off of of Grant's comment that everybody wishes they had more time. Here we are trying to affect change and do the best we can for students and hand off well prepared students to the higher ed infrastructure, and yet we're doing so always operating at a time deficit. Howard, how does this this effect change? Well, first of all, what, what I'll have to say is I'm, I'm very excited about this conversation because I think what Grant is doing for the K-12 through world is a gift that the higher ed world really doesn't yet fully appreciate in that there's a conversation as I navigate K-12 through and higher ed where they really don't recognize 
the overlap and the learning that they should be doing from each other. And one of the things that you've done, Grant, by getting out there, you know, I was just leading a workshop and I have the decision-making model. One of the things I talk about is what's the problem? And one of the reasons why we don't really understand the problem is because we, we actually recognize problems as symptoms versus really looking at underlying root cause. And I think what you've done is one of the core principles around problem finding is going to the source and that and have the conversations with the people who are really trying to affect the change. And there's not enough stories out there of success. What I'm most excited about is that when I listen to you, Grant, speak and I, and I read your writing, I think you bring a level of optimism that good work is being done. And I'll tell you, too often I find myself uh, leading talks and leading workshops where the perception is all about trying to overcome the next crisis versus, you know what, it is possible to transform. Uh, so I, I'd love to sort of give you a chance to you know, stream of consciousness even, what are some examples for you of, of a success that, that really maybe even opened your eyes that, you know what, it's actually better than some of you even realize is out there in terms of the kind of changes that some of these institutions are putting in place? You know how maybe maybe first rather than focusing on one example, let me let me just say that what was what was really uh, interesting to me, and that word optimistic has come up several times. I was very happy that uh, uh, two uh, two of the folks who kindly reviewed my book, Yang Zhao and David Kelly, both who I think a lot of your listeners would know, both used that term optimism with me. What was fascinating was that when, when I uh, asked these schools, these sixty four schools, uh, and then and subsequently a number of others, if I could come visit and, and observe, I really just asked them to show me what they felt was the most innovative practice or program at their school, uh, and then and talk a little bit about the struggles they went through to get there and what was working and what wasn't working. And virtually every school I went to had some really exciting, uh, fired up students, fired up teachers doing something that was vastly different than they'd done uh, maybe even just a few years in the past. I sort of call these the brush fires of innovation. Uh, and the fact that they were occurring at virtually every school, uh, schools which I had not pre-identified as being necessarily particularly recognized as innovative schools, but almost every school had something like that. The problem was, and I think this goes back to your comment about the disconnect perhaps between K-12 or the, uh, the, the desire we'd like to have K-12 and, 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 and higher education to maybe connect better, the, the problem really is that there's not a great deal of connectivity amongst these brush fires. And so there's this enormous recognition that we that the world is changing at a dramatic pace, that uh, the, the creation and management and, and passing along of knowledge is vastly different than it was even a decade ago. And yet uh, we have these just isolated brush fires of innovation burning in education, and they're not being fanned and collaboratively developed into a larger conflagration. Uh, and so there are just uh, dozens of these uh, examples that I, uh, that I cite in a book, things related to how people are using time, how they're using space, how people are changing their roles, the changing roles between students and teachers, and the management and creation of knowledge. Uh, and I am optimistic. I'm optimistic because everywhere I went, there were at least a subset of educators, uh, adults and students alike, who absolutely were passionate uh, that this modality of education was going to prepare them better for their futures. 
So, so I got a question for you about uh, the book because it just occurred to me as you were speaking. When you th- when when you think out whatever distance, and you think about uh, success, what are some things that you hope to see that you're not seeing now? I mean, when 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 you apply your own optimism to this conversation, I mean, I've got a view on this around higher education and what's beginning to happen around. Uh, authentic conversations around the business model and needing to know data so they can really then have conversations around the different types of institutions, whether it's the denominational schools, the community colleges. And they are so segmented and they're trying to have one conversation around business model, but it's not relevant. When you think about K through 12, what is it that you're most hoping to see change in the next three to five years? Well, I think it comes uh, comes down to this, and this was a real synthesis of, of, of what I saw and what I was introduced to at, at visiting all these schools, and, and obviously a lot in the literature as well. Uh, <clears throat> schools have been built around a, an industrial age assembly line model. They were essentially designed to meet a certain set of uh, demands uh, in the middle of the 19th century and through the 20th century. Uh, and they've actually been very, we've actually, our K-12 system of schools have been very, very successful with that. But the design specifications of that model, uh, things like repeatability, scalability, uh, really are the, the thing, the sort of uh, drivers that you would say would make an assembly line very efficient. Uh, when you talk to educators, talk to students, talk to parents, those are not the things that they want their education to look like. And as I was uh, sort of putting all this input together, more and more what I was hearing were drivers like adaptability and permeability, uh, uh, dynamism, uh, things like that, uh, uh, the ability for the organization to evolve along with the changes in the world. And those are the drivers that are much more uh, akin to or have an affinity for a natural ecosystem rather than an assembly line. And so I think that the what we want to see happen over the next, few, uh, the next period of time is uh, we want organizations to become to start acting more like the natural ecosystem that they want to be rather than respond only to the outside dictates of a, of a designer like an assembly line. Uh, and so the question is, how do we move from uh, a, a sort of hierarchical, uh, predictated system to one that is self-evolving? And that is really about uh, uh, organizations, in this case schools, becoming comfortable with and building a capacity for change that, frankly, they haven't had in the past. You know, so here's what's interesting for me, because I listen to the, what you're saying relative to my experience in higher ed, and you talk about the assembly line, you talk about uh, the model coming up through the industrial age or even earlier when it comes to uh, higher education. And then I apply this idea of we're trying to make... Uh, the kind of change and we've got sort of two worlds we've got the public education world and we've got the private education and i can tell you that at least in my 28 years of consulting probably the vast majority of my work and consulting has been around and has been uh, at the benefit of private uh colleges, universities who have had more flexibility or sort of more independence 
to move their institution in a certain direction. While although we do public work, there's a lot more constraints and they're much more reliant on public support. So I'm, I'm curious, when you see the model of this evolution, uh, do you see it primarily leading with the independent schools or are you seeing this conversation bubbling up also in the in the public sector? I see it absolutely bubbling up in both sectors, and uh, I was able on my trip and subsequently to visit and work with both uh, public, private, and charter schools. And uh, while certainly the flexibility to allow sort of a percolation or an ignition of brush fires of different types of programmatic learning and evolution in a school is easier at a private school. And while uh, charter schools are often founded around that principle, uh, I think there's a, a be beginning to be a recognition amongst uh, all educators that uh, families, uh, parents, and students have a vastly, vastly greater choice about their uh, their education and their learning pathways now than they did even 10 years ago, and that if uh, any school does not respond to that change in uh, the demand structure, that change in, in demand, what Shoshana Zuboff from the Harvard Business School has called a mutation uh, in global consumerism, uh, where we really have to provide a tailored experience to the, cons to the consumer. If, if any educational leader doesn't respond to that, they are putting their school in a position of becoming decreasingly relevant uh, going forward. And I see that happening. I'm, I'm working with uh, actually my local public school district here, Poway Unified, right now. Uh, uh, next In the next three weeks, we'll be opening a, a K-8 public school. It's not a charter school, a K-8 public school that will embody uh, absolutely the most transformational uh, sequence mm. of learning that I think I will have seen anywhere in the country uh, because they recognize that if they don't offer this sort of thing, uh, they will start losing their students more and more to charter, well, the charter movement. And I'll tell you something, you, I remember hearing you speak once, and I've been talking about this when I've had a chance to be in front of uh, administrators often in uh, K through 12, is that I remember probably around two years ago, or maybe a little bit longer, you were talking about uh, in the public school sector, uh, they are as 80% effective, this was the percentage you threw out at the time, as your private institutions, and therefore, and if the number has gone up, let's say it's 90%, and it's going to, it's some point get to a place where it's almost equivalent or maybe they're even more effective. How do you justify the kind of private school education for a K through 12 experience uh, and talk about relevancy and, and these schools that are charging because of the nature of what they've been able to charge and also the nature of their programs? It, that to me is a potential train wreck for institutions that, that are private that don't understand how to change or, or focus what their model really is. And it's, it, to me, it's a significant dilemma that they're facing. And I know I'm talking to heads who are saying that we have to figure out what our brand is. What I think you recall me saying uh, when we were in Chicago that time, Howard, was that I certainly visited public schools uh, that, in my view, uh, were producing uh, students uh, who were able to matriculate to the best colleges and universities in the country as a school as a whole, they were accomplishing what the best private schools 
uh, in the country accomplish, and they're obviously doing it at no cost to the parents, and they're doing it for a fraction of the expense. And uh, the reason I think that's important is not to say that independent schools don't have their strengths, but to focus independent schools on the strengths that they do have. Uh, one of the exercises that I go through when I work with independent schools is for uh, school leaders, uh, and, and I, when I say school leaders, I mean anybody, a teacher, a student, a trustee, or a, a, a faculty member, to focus on what that their school does that is so powerful, that is so engaging, that's so important to the consumer, that uh, really almost no matter, no matter the cost, people are willing to pay for it. And schools are able to identify what those are. It, it requires that they dig more deeply into their own value proposition. We can talk about value proposition if you'd like, but it certainly requires them to dig deeply into a value proposition in a way that, frankly, uh, very few schools uh, over the last decades have not had to for different reasons on the public and private side, but both public and private schools have to vastly have a better understanding of the value that they're bringing to their clients. Uh, uh, and, and if not, they're going, to be, they're, they're going to be in trouble going forward, I believe. Thanks, everybody, for listening. You've reached the end of part one of our conversation with Grant Lickman and his book, Ed Journey, A Roadmap to the Future of Education. But it does go on, so make sure you join us next week for the end of this conversation. You can find out more about the show at tybelink.com. Subscribe for free. Just search for us in iTunes. And find us on Twitter, at Howard Teibel or at Pete Wright. We'd love to hear your thoughts. Until next week, on behalf of Howard Teibel and special guest Grant Lickman, I'm Pete Wright, and this has been Navigating Change, the podcast from Teibel Inc. <laughs>